This morning, we're going to be doing something a little bit different than our, my usual approach. Uh, today, we're going to do an overview of a book in the Old Testament, actually the last book in the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. And the reason I'm doing that, uh, first of all, as you'll see when we get to the context, the, the book of Malachi contains God's last words to his people before he is silent for 400 years leading up to the events that we find in the Gospels. And the reason I want to do that is because, um, number one, the screen's not working, um, is because next week Dave is going to be preaching a Christmas message. Brother Dave Mueller, is, uh, my family and I will be away. You're on two, right? was my fault. Where were we? Oh. Well, as Dave's going to be preaching a, a, a message themed around Christmas, which is obviously fitting. We're just a couple of weeks out from uh, December 25th. Uh, I think it's important that we have an appreciation for the climate and the culture to which Jesus was born. It's important that we understand what was going on in Israel and really what life was like in the world. It was dark. It was dark and it's a timely reminder of the condition of the world that we live in now as well. So I'm going to do things differently this morning. We're actually going to cover the entire book of Malachi. Uh, but we're going to do it in sections. And so I'm not going to read the whole thing at once. Uh, I will warn you up front that there are a lot of slides. But most of them are the scripture passages that will be read. So let's uh, consider the book of Malachi. First of all, as I mentioned before, it's the last prophetic book of the Old Testament. It's the last book, if you're reading the Greek or the English scriptures, it's always listed at the end. But also, if you look at the Hebrew Bible as well, it is listed at the, as the last of the minor prophets. Uh, they group things differently in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, but everyone agrees that... Malachi was last. It was the last prophecy. It was the last written revelation from God. And time-wise, if you want an idea where to place it on the Bible timeline in your mind, uh, it's best uh, understood to have taken place about 100 years after the Babylonian captivity. That would have been around 425 B.C., uh, those of you that have studied the book of Nehemiah, uh, Malachi would have been one of Nehemiah's contemporaries. So they lived at the same time. 
And again, these are, are, are God's last recorded words to the people for 400 years before the angel appeared to Zechariah announcing the coming birth of John the Baptist. Malachi, it's a, it's a simple word in the Hebrew. It means my messenger. Some have uh, speculated that uh, since you don't see anybody in the New Testament, although Malachi is quoted, no one refers to him by name, that they think that Malachi may not be actually Malachi's name. It's just he calls himself God's messenger. Um, I don't know. I, I don't think it matters, but... It's important that as we look at his prophecy as a whole, that it, it basically is made up of charges that God is making against his people for their unfaithfulness. Now, you can read Malachi one of two ways. You can read it and you can find six separate charges that God is making against his people, or you can break it up into under three headings, which is what we're going to do today. And those three headings, those six charges, really fall under three themes. Two charges each. Does that make sense? And, and that's how we're going to approach the passage today. Uh, the three themes are the wickedness that was pervasive among the people. And then God charges them for their worship, which had been perverted by the people. And finally, the focus on God's commands that were being profaned by the people. Now, I mentioned the three themes and how they unfold in uh, Malachi. Uh, basically, Malachi uses what we could call a mirrored approach. You know, when you look in a mirror, when you see your reflection, if I'm looking in the mirror and I'm wearing a, uh, an eagle's shirt, not that I ever would, as I look in the mirror, what's the word? It's spelled backwards, right? Well, as you look at Malachi, and as we read Malachi, you find a pattern of charge one, charge two, and charge three against his people, and then it's repeated three, two, one. So it's like the charges are looking in on one another. Does that make sense? It's a really helpful way to read the book, and that's how we're going to tackle it this morning. As we consider God's charges against his people, we're going to look at charges one, which would be the beginning of the book and the end, then two, which is the next, and then the second to the end, and then the third charge, which consists of the middle of the book. All right? I know that's a little weird, but that's how he did it. And so I want you to understand the letter as a whole to understand its importance uh, in our worship, in our celebration of Christmas, but also in encouraging us to greater faithfulness uh, in this time of year and also just in our Christian walk. Um, in Malachi's prophecy, we find a condemnation of the present sin of the people, a lot mixed with promises of future hope. These promises that we'll find fulfilled in the gospel and primarily fulfilled surrounding the birth of Christ. And obviously we can learn much from both the charges against the people and the promises that we find in this short prophecy. And before we consider God's charges against his people, which will obviously be the bulk of our time since that's what the book is about, uh, let's open in a word of prayer and then we will begin. Lord, I thank you for this time, and I ask you for help, Lord. This is not an approach that uh, we have done before, and so I pray, Lord, that in the midst of the information and everything that uh, trying to cover well, Lord, that your spirit would be at work. 
Uh, Lord, give me freedom to, to recognize uh, if there's anything that, that, that can be passed over for now and maybe come back to at a later date. But Lord, I want to serve your people well. Lord, I want to, to see them grow in their joy in you. Lord, I, I want them to have a sense of, of, of the weight of, of the world that Jesus was born into. And also, Lord, a, a greater sense of, of the weight of the world that we live in today as well. Lord, we want to worship you well now in the Christmas season and always. And, and to do so, Lord, we must see things clearly. So open our eyes to see, Lord. Open my mouth and my mind to think and to speak clearly for your glory as we consider your word. Help us and be glorified, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first charge that we find here in Malachi, I'm sorry, I thought I changed all the colors. That's red, charge one. Uh, the people were wicked in claiming that God was not good. We see this first in the beginning of chapter one and then uh, at the end in chapters three and four. And uh, this charge, it's important that we understand why they would say something like that about God. Now, I mentioned that Malachi was a contemporary of, uh, of Nehemiah. And if you have any sense of, of, of what was going on in Israel and in Judah during those days, then you understand that um, it was both a happy time in that the people had been released from captivity, but it was also a discouraging time but because Israel had not, and Judah, had not been restored to their former glory. So although they had freedom, they were still under the control of the Persians. Although they were back in their homeland, they were still harassed by enemies on every side. And so this ongoing uh, experience for the, for the hundred years following their release from captivity they began to look around at their circumstances and, and, and wonder if, if this is what God has for us, how can God be good? That, that, that's what's going on. The, it, it was a season where, in their eyes, the godly were suffering and the wicked were flourishing. Now, what was left of Judah, as I mentioned before, was under the authority of the Persians. And so this threat, uh, both from the, from, from the whims of the, of the leaders of the Persians and also from other nations, well, was something that weighed heavily among the people. Remember, when they were in captivity, they received encouraging prophecies of what God was going to do once he freed them. And in their minds, they had yet to see the fulfillment of these prophecies. And so these circumstances led to their doubt of God's love for them. Now, I point those things out because let's be honest. We are a people that are easily influenced by our circumstances, are we not? When things get tough, when things aren't going the way we think they ought to go, and I'm not saying any of this to minimize difficult circumstances. They are real. But we know all too well that temptation, do we not? My body hurts. My family won't believe. The diagnosis was bad. How can God be good? It's a real temptation. 
And so we need something solid to hang our faith on, do we not? So God deals first with this charge against him that he's not good, that he doesn't love his people because of their circumstances. Malachi chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. The oracle, and this begins actually on page 801 in the Bibles that are out there. You can read on the screen or you can follow along with an open book. That might help you track where we are. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Now, what is Malachi talking about? Well, that's a good question, right? Well, this is where it's important that we understand our Bible history. First of all, let's remember that God is responding to the doubt of his people, and so he's reminding them of his covenant love towards them. We, Sunday school, if you grew up going to Sunday school, you probably heard the story of Jacob and Esau. Jacob is the one who stole Esau's blessing, but, but, but God allowed for that and actually chose to bless Jacob's lineage that being the lineage that the nation of Israel would come through, and and more importantly, the lineage through whom this Messiah would come. And so they grew up believing, okay, we are God's people. We are descendants of Jacob. And so God points them back to that. This is what you believe. This is what you've been taught about me. And it's important that you understand that all the way back when, 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 when one of the early patriarchs was chosen and, and his brother rejected, I had you in mind, Israel. God had chosen the descendants of Jacob rather than Esau. And Esau's descendants would become idol worshipers, the Edomites. So, so Jacob was chosen to receive God's blessing and favor. And so here in in Malachi chapter 1, God is saying, listen, you are the chosen people. Remember my covenant love towards you. You question my goodness, but I want to remind you that you are the ones who have been chosen. And, And really, in spite of how they felt, God's disposition and love towards his people was unchanging. And he promises future vindication and judgment. That reference to the Edomites being, uh, being completely wiped out. That was in the process of happening when Malachi wrote this prophecy. But within a generation, Edom would be no more and would never exist again. And so this was a promise that God fulfilled right away. He, he wanted them to see his faithfulness to his promises to his people brothers and sisters do we cling to God's promises do we stand upon his faithfulness 
when circumstances may not be what we think they ought to be? Malachi continues. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evil doers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. So they're complaining. God, you don't even punish the people who blaspheme your name. But, verse 16, then those who feared the Lord, and this is chapter 3, spoke one with another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. And so that first charge, God doesn't love us. Look at our circumstances. God says, remember the covenant. Here in the second charge, how can you, how is it, it's a waste of time to serve you, God. It's a vain thing. That word vain means worthless. Chapter 4, he continues, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. That day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch, Edom, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. So God calls them to remember his goodness here in chapter 3, 13 through chapter 4, verse 3. The, the priest had been openly speaking out against God, saying it's vain to serve him. It's worthless to serve God. These were the people who were called to worship God, to lead the people in worship. Can you imagine a time when, when pastors are openly speaking out and mocking God? The answer to that should be yes, because we live in that day now as well. The people called to lead others in worship lacked love and reverence for God. This has given us again an idea of the climate of the nation to which Jesus was born. They also doubted whether God was just, whether the things that he did was right and true, were right and true. And God reminds them, that yes, everything that I do is right and true, and the day is coming when I will make all things right. Now, this is both a warning and a promise to the people that though things may not look right to you now, a day will come when all things are made right before God. Think about that for a moment, brothers and sisters. Not just all the wrongs done in Israel, but the day is coming when every wrong that has ever been committed will be made right. Every 
sin that has been committed will be judged either through the sacrifice of Christ or people standing on their own before God. But no sin, no injustice, no unrighteousness escapes the gaze of God. In his patience, he provides the opportunity for man to repent of their sins and respond in faith to the gospel. But God is not unjust for delaying his punishment upon the world. But again, the attitude, even among those who were called to lead the people in worship, was to profane the name of God. But it doesn't stop there. God has more charges against his people. The, the second charge is that the people had perverted the worship of God. That's chapter 1, uh, verse 6 through chapter 2, verse 9, and then chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. Now, the reason this is significant, uh, again, we need context to understand why God is bringing these charges against his people. Well, number one, we need to realize that the Mosaic law provided very specific instructions on how the people were to worship God. If you go back and you, you, you read the Pentateuch and you, how God delivered his law and the things that were put into place with both the building of the tabernacle and later the temple. God was very specific as to how he was to be worshipped by his people and there was a, a reason for that. And those reasons, those requirements in many cases had gospel implications. There's a reason why the lamb that was sacrificed on, on the day of atonement had to be perfect, spotless. As those of us who live on this side of the gospel, we know why, right? Because Jesus is referred to as the perfect and spotless Lamb of God who gave his life to take away the sin of the world. And so God took his worship very seriously because everything that he had them doing in the temple was a picture of something greater a greater reality that he was trying to point the people towards to that day when the Messiah would come, to that day we're going to celebrate next week through Dave's sermon and then two weeks later as we celebrate the incarnation on Christmas Day. But everything had a purpose and the perversions that were taking place in worship were a distraction, were, were, were turning the people away from and, and really perverting what it was to be about in general. So Malachi chapter 1, verses 6 through 2, 9. God continues through Malachi. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you. O priest who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame and sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now 
Entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand. Will he show, you, show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts, but you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted, and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what weariness is this, or this is? And you snorted it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering? Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. And now, O oh priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and righteousness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and a people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways but show partiality in your instruction. These are hard words, are they not? God is not playing around. The priests and the people had dishonored God by offering from the worst of their flocks and their harvests. They were offering to him polluted sacrifices that they would not even serve as food to people in high standing. They were giving the least valuable things they had. God, in verse 10, says, you know what? I would rather someone just shut the door on the altar than allow you to continue what you are offering in my name. Now, if that sounds hard to you, I, I want you to take a moment to think 
about what that says about how seriously God takes his honor. Now, this is a time where we would do well to think deeply about that. Now, we worship under a different system. We, we see how Jesus is a fulfillment of, of much of what we see in the temple worship. But God is no less holy today as he was the day he sent Malachi to bring the pain to the priests. If he says it, it is important, and it must be important to us because it is for his glory and it is for our good. And God, through Malachi, condemns the priests because they have perverted the truth about God in their worship and also in what they taught. Remember, they had said that it was a, it was a worthless thing to devote one's life to following God. This continues in chapter 3. Verses 6 through 12. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, reminding them of the covenant, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Notice how God through Malachi uses these questions and answers to make the case and to answer any objections they might have. God lays them bare. They, they, they have no excuse when this is said and done. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delights, says the Lord of hosts. So it wasn't just the sacrifices that were dishonoring to God. People also were not following their Mosaic law instructions to tithe as they should as well. Now we need to remember that the nation of, uh, of Israel uh, was a theocracy. It was God-centered. So Everything centered on from the governance, they governed according to God's law, and they worshipped according to God's law. It's a little bit different than where we live today. And so for things to function as they should, there was the expectation that the people would give yearly and according to certain prescriptions, a tithe. Some people think that a tithe is simply a tenth, and that's what it literally means. But there were years where when all the tithes that the people were called to, to give up were added up, it, it equaled about 30% of their income. And so it was an important aspect of Israel's worship of God. And we see here in Malachi that not only were they giving unacceptable sacrifices, they were holding back in their support of the temple worship. 
And God condemns the people for this. And, and that phrase, that, put me to the test, says God, and, and I'm going to open up the windows of heaven. Now, a lot of people have been using that nowadays to say, okay, you guys need to give more money to the church, and, and God's going to automatically give you a bunch more money in return. Well, that's kind of missing what, Paul, what uh, Mal- God is saying through Malachi here. Now, in this case, he is calling them to follow his prescription for giving for Israel, for temple worship. And this description of of paying the full tithe, he's basically calling them to repent. Turn away from the wicked way that you have been living and see what I will do. I will bless you. You will have what you need. But that doesn't guarantee for us, modern Christians, that we may not have times where things are tight. It's not a blanket promise to every Christian who's ever lived that that if you give generously, and we should, that God's automatically, at the very next moment, going to pour out his blessings upon us. Now, we should give generously because we have been given generously from God, and God does promise to supply our needs But we need to understand that he is faithful during our seasons of plenty and in our seasons where we lack. We we aren't called to to tithe up to 30%. We are called in the New Testament to give faithfully and to give generously and to give willingly what God sets upon our hearts. And we should do that for the glory of God. It is an aspect of our worship. But we're not funding a nation in that same way but the people were unfaithful in their worship to their giving of their tithes they they, they failed to obey God again they were established on the theocracy I got a little ahead of myself And, 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 and this was another way that they were not following God's prescribed means of worship which he had promised would be the key to their prosperity and security. And so God says, you're, you're robbing me of what's been required in my law. Finally, charge three. God's charges against his people. They had profaned the commands of God. Chapter two, verses 10 through chapter three, verse five. Now, Malachi focuses primarily on two sins that are related to marriage. First of all, we see that Divorce, unwarranted divorce, was rampant among the Israelites. And secondly, we see that there were many that had taken wives from neighboring nations, which had been forbidden by God. We need to understand that when God prohibited his people from marrying people from foreign nations, it it wasn't to keep a pure race in the sense that there was something wrong with, 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 with people who looked different being married to one another. This was a prohibition that was seeking to guard his people from the idolatrous worship of other nations. He was trying to keep them pure spiritually because all the other nations worshiped false gods. The people had disobeyed God's commands and the end result was that the idols for other nations had crept in and were a part of Israel's life and practice. Malachi 2, 10. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another? 
profaning the covenant of our fathers. Judah has been faithless, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with the portion, with the portion of the Spirit in their union? And was not the one God seeking godly offspring? So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless, faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So it's a call to honor human covenants as, a, as an expression of our faithfulness to God. Now, in focusing on the marital sins of the people, Malachi reminds us that the covenant of marriage is more than just a covenant between husband and wife, but that it is also a covenant with God. Now, married folks, how often do you think about it that way? I'm unconcerned about your spiritual condition on the day you got married, whether you are a believer or an unbeliever. But you sit here this morning as believers. And for you who are married, do you see your union with your wife as also being a covenant with the God who saves you? That should cause us to look differently at our spouses. It should cause us to look differently at our God as well. Here in the midst of bringing the thunder to his people for their faithlessness. God focuses clearly and specifically on the primary human covenant relationship of the family, which is the marriage. 
These are strong words and a stern reminder for us as his people. By freely marrying women from foreign nations, the idolatrous worship of those nations was introduced to and ingrained in the lives of the people of God. The people wondered why they were not flourishing. It was because they were not doing anything, not even marriage, according to God's standard. And this weakened their faith and also their witness, the witness of the people of God. Now, we need to realize that the sin of unwarranted divorce was equally harmful to the nation of Israel as well. We need to understand that by devaluing marriage, they devalued the God who created marriage, which led to the breakdown of the family and the weakening of the nation. Just a little bit later, we see God promising that Elijah... We see in the Gospel of Luke that in the spirit of Elijah that a messenger is going to come who's going to restore the hearts of the father to the children and the children to their fathers. It's already an allusion to what was going on in Israel at that time. The families were breaking down. And ultimately we see from this passage that the devaluing of Marriage was ultimately a sign of unbelief of the people. Now those are our three groupings of charges against the people. They give us a pretty clear and ugly picture of the condition of Israel, does it not? They doubted the goodness of God. They ignored God's commands for how they were to worship. They were profaning covenants that God created as good. Now, we would read that about a people and we would think, you know what, God should probably just wipe them out and start over, right? But thankfully, that's not how God operates. And, and hopefully, as I've read through this book, that you've picked up on some of the promises that God makes to his people, even in the midst of their unfaithfulness. Quickly, let's consider God's promises for the future. Now again, this is against the backdrop of, of all the sin and the unfaithfulness of the people. Uh, and in that backdrop, we, we, we see several encouraging promises from God, which, we, which are fulfilled in the gospel. Promise number one, we, we know that God's covenant love for his people will result in his greatness being known throughout all the world. We see this in chapter 1, verses 5, 11, and 14. God says, my name is going to be made great. There's going to be a time where people offer worship from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And we know that that is possible through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Promise number two, we, we know that God will both accept, receive, and preserve those who truly love him. Chapter 3, verses 16 through 18 Malachi, God through Malachi references the remnant of those who feared God. God says, listen, I've got you guys. I see your faith in the midst of an unfaithful generation and I've got you. Promise number three, God's judgment will come upon the wicked. I mentioned that earlier. No sin that's ever been committed will go unpunished, either in judgment or are through the sacrifice of Jesus for us. 
Promise number four, God will send a messenger to prepare for the coming Messiah. Chapter four, verses five and six. We're going to touch on that again in just a moment. And promise number five, the Messiah will come to purify for himself a people for the glory of God. And we know that that was for you and I. Five promises out of a few more that you can find in there. Six promises. The Messiah himself will be the one to judge the wicked. Verse 5 of chapter 3. Again, this is darkness. 400 years of darkness. But we know from the gospel that light is coming. Remember how Malachi ends? Malachi chapter 4 verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the father to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. God's last words to his people for 400 years. Nothing. Generation after generation with these words from Malachi echoing in their ears. When's he going to come? When's he going to come? Will, will it be now? To the point probably where they stopped thinking it would ever happen. But then in Luke chapter 1, we read this. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. And he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord, a people prepared. There was a remnant waiting for the news that the promise through Malachi would be fulfilled. And here in the Gospel of Luke, we, we, we have God breaking the silence of 400 years of darkness, picking up essentially where he left off. But that's not the only time God speaks, is it? Certainly not the only angel to appear. 
An angel appears to Mary, another to Joseph. Baby Jesus is prophesied over in the temple. You have a multitude of angels that appear to the shepherds as Jesus grows and one day will be baptized. We hear the very voice of God saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And so God doesn't just whisper when the light comes. We find him shouting miraculously throughout the life of Jesus, in the teaching of Jesus, in the miracles of Jesus, all proclaiming this is the one who was spoken of even in the book of Genesis chapter 3 when God promised that he would use the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. Everything that we read from Genesis through Malachi builds to the coming of the light. And everything that we read from the Gospels to Revelation reveals to us how what we should believe, who we should trust, how we should live, and what we should look to, the return of Christ. Not only do we have the light, Jesus tells us that we are now the light. And we are called to shine that light in the darkness, brothers and sisters. So we must conclude with both warnings and encouragements from Malachi quickly. First of all, we must be aware that we too can become like the Israelites in our approach to God. It is easy to come before him for worship and fail to give him the honor that is due his name. And while Jesus bore God's wrath for when we commit that sin, we should not be okay with that sin. We must prioritize the worship of God. That means we prepare ourselves to come and to, and to see him as he has revealed himself from his word. That's why we sing songs that are so rich with biblical truth because we want you to worship God as he has revealed himself. That is why we teach and preach from this holy book because it is where God speaks to his people. And it is easy because we tend to do things the same way every week just to go into to cruise mode, but that is not the way we honor God with our worship, brothers and sisters. We must prepare our hearts and be on guard against the tendency to be just like them in our worship. We must be on guard against the temptation to doubt God's goodness and love. Now again, this is another area where we will be tempted and we are tempted and, and it's not the presence of temptation that, 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 that should trouble us. It is how are we battling it? Sometimes the, the darkness will not lift and all we can do is cling to what the Bible tells us is true when we're struggling to believe it ourselves. But even that is honoring to God, brothers and sisters. And the way we cling to that truth is by knowing it. That is the, the way we battle to, to cling to God's goodness and love even when we don't feel it in our lives. We must be on guard against the temptation to, to devalue God's commandments and his, 
and the covenants that he has created. Marriage was an easy one, but, but, but there are our, our covenants and other ways that we relate to one another in the body of Christ. And it is important as brothers and sisters in Christ that we seek to honor and build one another up in the faith. We need to be willing to, to seek forgiveness and restoration. We need to be willing to, to, to recognize that, that, that even there are times when we don't intend to hurt one another that we do and, and be willing to receive that and make it right. We, we need to, to be on guard and be aware of what our brothers and sisters are going through so that we can be more sensitive in our care for one another. This is how we show our love for God and our love for one another. And we are tempted to offer less than our very best in our worship of God. And that goes again back to the need to prepare ourselves to worship Him well each day. Thankfully, even though we face these temptations and, yes, even fail in them, Jesus came to redeem us from the curse of our sin and to set us free to flee these temptations and to honor him wholeheartedly. We're going to close in just a moment by singing a, a, a great modern hymn, He Will Hold Me Fast. And the good news, brothers and sisters, is that he does. On our best days, he is holding us fast. On our worst days, he is holding us fast. He is faithful. He will never let us go. Let us pray together. Lord, I thank you 